This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A new tip sheet's out from the Office of Personnel Management with advice for leaders on mental health issues. The sheet includes advice for agency HR professionals and work-life coordinators to communicate a lot with employees about safety efforts and scheduling flexibilities. Federal Times reports HR staff and work-life coordinators can attend a virtual work-life event this coming Thursday. The General Services Administration will bring a new government-wide cloud blanket purchase agreement to market. A new request for information asks for industry input for GSA's acquisition strategy for, quote, everything as a service in the cloud. NextGov reports the deadline for responses is next Monday. The first draft of the Defense Information Systems Agency's Zero Trust Reference Architectures Online, DISA's Security Enablers Portfolio Manager Joe Brinker tells NextGov the agency's already working on an updated version. Brinker says the agency intends the document to be dynamic, open to updates anytime. President Biden's executive order includes a long list of cybersecurity tasks that agencies will perform to secure their systems. Some of the requirements, though, are things they should have been doing all along. Ron Marks is president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies, a former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate majority leaders. He's writing about the EO at cybersecurityintelligence.com. Ron, thanks very much for coming on the program. You always write this stuff in a way that catches the ear and catches the eye. You write, I believe in coincidences. I do not trust coincidences. What does that mean in the context of Colonial Pipeline? Well, in terms of Colonial Pipeline, I, you know, it, the group was located in Russia. Uh, even if there was, you know, there's a tangential connection at, at, at worst, at, at, uh, at best, and I use that term in quotation marks, these guys were hooked up with, the, uh, with Russian intel. I, I think they may have been slightly the gang who couldn't shoot straight in the sense that they went a little bit too far, uh, not necessarily anticipating reactions on this end, and they did get shut down very quickly. Uh, I would have loved to have been on the end of that phone call, uh, probably between uh, the White House and the Kremlin saying what the heck is going on here. Um, but nevertheless, this is not going to go away. Uh, these guys have, have shown a path that's marked out pretty well. Uh, they did get paid when it's all said and done, and they closed shop, which means that they're, you know, exactly 30 seconds away from opening up another, uh, another you know, another site to go from. So. You know, I'm not so sure what we've accomplished on this, and in part because we've been dealing with this for a number of years now, we, the U.S. government and other Western European countries, et cetera, and we're not really coming up with a solution for it. We're not coming up with guidelines for it. Um, you know, again, we had some confusion. Part of it may have been reporting. Part of it may have simply been, uh, you know, the, the fog of cyber war, I guess. Uh, and that is, you know, do they pay? Did they pay? Should they pay? Well, you know, that's something they did pay, and they paid because it's the cost of business. And until the government tells the private sector what it should and should not do, the, government, the private sector will weigh cost-benefit analysis, and they'll decide, well, it's easier to pay it than not. But that simply means that you've allowed uh, 
allowed the pirates uh, another opportunity to make some money, and you've uh, hardly discouraged them, to say the least. We can talk about the philosophy of ransomware and, and paying or not paying another time, but regarding the guidelines that you just referenced, Ron, you write in this piece, American businesses need a standard they can follow to protect themselves, and they need direct orders from the U.S. government on what it takes to keep systems safe and be required to do so. Is, it, the guidelines at least exist from this, don't they? Or maybe have they not gone far enough? And certainly, I know they're not orders. Is that part of the problem? Yeah, I think it is part of the problem. I, you know, when you, you look at the org chart for the U.S. government in terms of, you know, what issues are being covered in cyberspace, someone just sent me a copy of, of one this morning, in fact, and it, it basically looks like the circuit board on a PC. Uh, NIST has been very good uh, in terms of laying out rules. They're advisory. They're laid out there essentially saying, look, this is the best practices at this point. You know, companies, and, and I was as guilty as anybody else when I was when I was running units, um, you know, you're guilty. I mean, you're working on profit and loss basis. And, you know, if you're telling me that I need to spend another half a million dollars on security issues, by the way, which is a cost to me, coming out of my bottom line, you better explain to me why I should do it, uh, especially if the cost of not doing it, you know, again, uh, appears somewhat ambiguously off in the distance. So unless I'm required to do it, I'm not going to do it. And we have just minced around the edge of this thing for years. I can remember Amit Duran and Bob Laskowski hashing this out in the George W. Bush administration back in 2004, 5, and 6. Um, business, a nice article in the Wall Street Journal today, business is, you know, to some extent crying out, what do you want us to do? What is the standard here that we can perform to? In part because they have to report back to their corporate directors and their stockholders and explain themselves as to why something happened. Uh, speaking of meetings, I would also like to be at the next Colonial Pipeline stockholders meeting. There are going to be a lot of people who are very unhappy at this point. We have about a minute left, Ron. Um, you write in this piece something that kind of uh, it definitely raised my eyebrows. The USG, U.S. government seems to be inadvertently helping these kinds of hackers. How so and how to stop that? Well, you know, this is one of those ones where the, where the best of intentions, you know, the road to hell, that kind of thing. Uh, the idea, of course, was uh, to expose uh, some of these tools that were being used immediately, uh, some of the tools that they, being NSA or others, were using, uh, just to make sure that, uh, that everybody understood, you know, sort of what the technology was that was out there. Um, we've also publicly reacted uh, to a number of these instances. And, you know, look, these guys aren't stupid. I think that's the one thing about, about this ransomware business and, and other hackers, cyber hackers. These guys are very bright guys. They're learning. Uh, they're following what's going on. They're picking up this information. And we need to think, I think, a little more carefully about how we provide them essentially guidelines uh, for what it is we're doing and where we're going. Ron Marks, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. Delighted to be here. You can find a link to the executive order and Ron's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, the defense budget's already bigger than some people think it is. Straight ahead on Government Matters, looking at the full picture of military spending. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Biden administration will propose a budget of $753 billion for national security when it sends its official budget request to Congress later this month. $715 billion for the Defense Department, and that is restarting discussion of where money comes from for defense and where power comes from. Miranda Preeb is director of the Center for Analysis of U.S. Grand Strategy at RAND. She's writing about the source of U.S. military power and defense news with her colleagues Brian Rooney and Grant Johnson. Miranda, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and your colleagues write in this piece, U.S. budget choices should look beyond immediate defense spending to investments that prepare the country for a sustained challenge. That sustained challenge, obviously, is coming from China and Russia in great power competition. What are you talking about regarding the investments that are necessary? necessary for that kind of long-term challenge? Well, we're thinking about a lot of things, including national security spending um, on different departments and uh, agencies. For example, the State Department are important parts of U.S. national security spending. But in this particular op-ed, we were focusing on the ways in which less obvious forms of government spending can actually promote national security. So we focus in particular on how infrastructure spending can promote economic growth. And we argue that economic growth has important security implications because it makes the U.S. economy larger in the long term. And this is the basis from which we can make uh, future defense spending. You point out a number of interesting uh, arguments about infrastructure spending. One of them, infrastructure spending improves the resilience of U.S. military installations. That is, seems to be a direct cause and effect that makes a, a, an argument for that kind of infrastructure spending. What makes the most sense in the context of military installations, Miranda? Well, you know, we highlight just as an example uh, the electrical grid, which often military uh, installations rely on the civilian infrastructure um, for the electric for electricity. So that's just one example of the ways in which um, the spending that we have in uh, on civilian infrastructure can actually help ensure that military installations uh, are resilient and reliable. We also want to think about transportation infrastructure when it comes to military deployments. So from the military installations over to um, the, the ports or wherever they end up leaving from. And so, again, the extent to which we invest in the resilience and reliability of those systems, we're actually contributing both to military readiness, but also preventing disruptions that could be problematic in the event of a conflict. The infrastructure investments that you're talking about there, should they be primarily focused, in your view, in uh, civilian areas? So, for example, uh, the Army has done a lot of work over the years in building uh, solar power uh, at their installations and forming public-private partnerships so that they can rely less on the civilian grid. It sounds like you're mm -hmm. saying the, the, the civilian and military uh, integration is important infrastructure-wise, too. Yeah, we didn't, our research didn't cover uh, the right breakdown between investments that the military makes itself in infrastructure to be more autonomous and the amount that should be spent on civilian infrastructure. I think that's a good area for discussion and debate. But we know that today that this is a challenge and that it's something where if we put investments into civilian infrastructure for domestic reasons, that it actually has spillover effects for security. Um, you also write infrastructure investments promote economic growth, which enables future defense spending. That's the biggest piece I think that the Defense Department is worried about is where's the money going to come from to do what we right. need to do in the out years, correct? Right. 
Yeah, I think we want to think both about the you know the the size of the economy for what we can spend on defense in the future. We want to have choices. We want to be able to spend more in the future if threats turn out to be larger than than they are now. Um, but we also want to be able to make choices between uh, trade-offs between security and domestic. Uh, priorities and the more the economy grows and the more we put investments in things like infrastructure that boost economic growth, the more we have those choices in the future. I want to go back to the words that you uh, used earlier in the piece and that I mentioned to you at the beginning of this conversation and those are the words sustained challenge. It yeah. strikes me that's maybe what we as a government are starting to understand and maybe the citizenry has not yet started to understand this is almost a Cold War worldview, I guess, that we should think about, isn't it, that this is something that we'll be involved in for the next 40, 50, 70, maybe 100 years. This isn't a trend that happens five years out, China and Russia don't bother us anymore, right? Right, and that was really our main motivation in writing this piece, is to say, you know, we're having a debate about today and maybe the next few years, but actually, you know, the rise of China is a long-term trend. You know, there could be bumps along the way, but at least from what we can see, this is something that we're going to have to manage and respond to for many decades to come. And so, you know, today, China, um, you know, the United States remains the most dominant military power in the world. China is getting stronger, but it might be even stronger in the future. And so there's questions about the trade-offs you want to make between today you know, do we want to make spend a little less on defense today to make investments that pay off in the longer term? You know, I think our policy choices uh, will affect the intensity of the competition, and hopefully we won't have to spend more in the future. Um, you know, we can potentially find ways to work better with China going forward. Um, so I don't want to say that a Cold War style competition is inevitable, but I do think we want to have choices for an uncertain future. And so making investments that promote growth and are sustainable give us more options for what we what might happen in the future. Miranda Preeb, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You can find a link to that piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the cybersecurity executive order isn't just for the government. The White House's message for industry to keep agency networks secure. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The new White House cybersecurity executive order requires agencies to take specific actions and meet hard deadlines. The vendors that serve government will have new rules to follow, too, as a result of the EO. Eric Crucius is senior counsel at Holland and Knight. Eric, welcome. It's good to see you again. What difference does this make for the vendors that serve the government? Um, it makes a pretty big difference. I mean, as of now, there aren't any new rules on the vendors. Um, the executive order lays out a plan of new rules to kind of become implemented. I remember about seven to 10 years ago, I was speaking at the National Contract Management Association's annual conference, and I said, there's a cybersecurity tsunami coming. Um, so be careful, don't get swept away. And I think what's going to happen as this executive order rolls out is that a lot of companies who are not willing to be compliant or are not compliant are going to get swept away because the government's just no longer going to want to do business with them. So I think even though there's not a requirement that's that's there right now, 
um, contractors should should really pay close attention because there are a lot of new uh, things that they'll have to do, such as disclosing breaches, keeping track of the software that they're using. Um, there's a whole long laundry list of things that they'll have to do. What are some of the most important things that you have a sense that they'll have to do in the future that maybe they're not doing or not doing enough of now? I think part of this kind of centers on what is critical software. So uh, certain uh, contractors who use software that the government will be deemed critical um, are, um, for lack of a better term, will have to kind of pay attention to what what's going on with that software. For instance, there is a reading of the EO where a contractor who's using a popular word processing program, um, if that word processing program has some kind of security incident that's unrelated to the contractor, maybe in a far off land somewhere else, the contractor may have to bring that information to the government. So it might be the onus may be on the contractors to kind of understand what's happening with all the software that they're using if that software is kind of deemed critical software. Um, so there's a lot of thing nuance like that where it's a lot of it's going to kind of be hammered out in the regulate regulatory process that's going to happen over the next six to 12 months but you'll see contractors who have not had requirements because they're civilian contractors and they're you know they do a lot of commercial work um all of a sudden are going to be hit with these new cybersecurity requirements that they haven't seen coming and come out of left field you used a phrase there a moment ago, Eric, that I think is interesting, a reading of the EO, and then you made a reference. Does that mean that the EO, or at least parts of it, are open to interpretation and maybe aren't as clear as vendors would like it to be? Yes, and I don't think that's unusual, but it's unfortunately what happens um, because you know, the folks who, in the White House are gonna leave it to the regulatory agencies to kind of nail down the details. And which way those details go, can really have a huge impact on how this EO goes. So for instance, I, you know, I go back to the definition of critical software. You could see a reading of the EO where critical software really means just about any piece of software uh, a user uses or buys. And that includes ubiquitous programs that we all have on our computers. You could see another reading of critical software that's very specific, that's only to you know, really highly uh, technical uh, projects. Um, how, how the Bar Council will write that definition really will impact probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of contractors and what they'll have to do. So the EO, unfortunately, is not very specific, but I think that's just how it works, where the White House just kind of leaves it to the experts to kind of figure that out. So how do you as a company plan for that ahead of time while still sitting there thinking, well, we want to continue to serve and help our customers figure out what this all means and figure out what they need to do, too? You know, for a company, I think the best thing to do is kind of prepare for, you know, for lack of a better term, the worst case scenario or the most regulatory heavy scenario for that company. Um, and just kind of understand what the EO says, what that worst case interpretation is. And I'm not saying worse like it's bad to have cybersecurity controls, just worse that it's going to be additional regulations that they'll have to pay for and comply with. But look at that worst case scenario and kind of understand what it is and then game plan that out. You know, if I have to do X, what does that mean from a regulatory perspective? How do I prepare for that? And not spend a ton of money getting prepared, but at least kind of understand the process to be prepared for that. For, so when that those proposed regs come out and those final regs come out, that that company is ready to go. Because if they're not, the government's just not going to do business with them anymore. We have a little bit more than a minute left, Eric. What would you watch moving forward? So this executive order has dozens of, of you know, directives for agencies to do things. And what I'll be looking for is how quickly are those directives rolling out? Um, you know, oftentimes we get executive orders with deadlines, those deadlines push and push and push. And 
seven years later we don't have a regulation. I can't imagine that's going to happen here, but I'm going to watch how this cascades and see if the first few deadlines are met, and that will give a good sense of how quickly this process is going to go. Uh, 20 seconds. Um, what happens after that? What, what do you think companies will have to do next? I think companies will have to be ready for an entire new world of cybersecurity compliance, not just folks in the DOD space, but folks in the civilian space. You lay that on top of CMMC, and cybersecurity is probably the top regulatory requirement that contractors have to think about right now. Eric Crucius, thanks very much. As always, great to see you. Thank you. You can find the link to the Cyber EO at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.